October 14th edition of the Global News Review. Thanks uh, for joining Ambassador Dick Bowers and Dr. Breck Walker and I and our uh, special guest today. Uh, we've got uh, with us David Plazas, the opinion engagement editor from the Tennessean and the USA Today Network in uh, Tennessee. David, uh, thanks for, uh, uh, for joining us today. Well, it's my pleasure, Pat. Thanks for having me here. Oh, hey, you Brett, bet. How's it going? And, and we appreciate uh, you having been on our Global Nashville with Carl Dean program at the, uh, the end of September. That was a, a terrific conversation about things going on in Nashville and uh, uh, what, uh, what challenges this, the city faces. So I would uh, recommend that uh, our viewers visit our youtube.com slash TNWAC uh, video archive. All of the programs are there and you can see David and, and uh, former Mayor Carl Dean uh, talking about uh, those important issues. But today we're gonna talk with uh, David about uh, uh, journalism and reporters under attack around the world and um, uh, what's, what's happening uh, in the suppression of uh, freedom of the press and problems stemming from the proliferation of people talking about fake news uh, undercutting the credibility of, of journalism. Uh, that uh, is topic two. Uh, Dick, uh, Breck, good to see you. Good to see you, Patrick. Welcome, David. Nice to see you. Yeah, great to be here. Nice to get to meet David as well. Okay, uh, Dick, why don't you uh, take us into... Well, we've, got, we've got our usual kind of three topics today, Pat, but I think any one of them we could spend the whole hour on, but uh, we'll try to cut them short. First, we're going to talk about the World Food Program and Alfred Nobel. So as you know, the World Food Program just got the Nobel Peace Prize. Secondly, World Press Freedom Under Attack, and David's going to take the lead on that. And then we've got an incredibly fascinating topic, at least for me, nuclear weapons dexamethasone and the 25th amendment and they all tie together very neatly so as you will see so those are our three topics pat okay and uh breck welcome back after your uh, your week uh, sabbatical um it's it's good to have you uh, back uh, in the crew here and uh, why don't you uh, start us off with the uh, weekly quiz question uh, great pat thanks and it's it's great to be back with you guys uh, for sure so this week, we've added a question to the What in the World quiz from a United States Institute of Peace report. Uh, the Tennessee World Affairs Council, TINWAC, has enjoyed a, a close relationship with the U.S. Institute of Peace, and we're pleased to highlight the insightful reports they have on their website by uh, adding a question uh, from that report each week. So each week, question number five in our weekly quiz will be a U.S. Institute of Peace question of the week. So here's, here's the question this week. As people in Belarus continue massive protest against an autocratic ruler and a rigged election, risk arising that Russia's military could take a direct role, a less visible than an overt invasion, but a role projecting power westward toward NATO and threatening Ukraine from the north. So the question is, what is the one critical difference between the pro-democracy protest in Belarus from those in Ukraine? And the possibilities are A, protesters in Minsk do not seek a sharp break with Russia. B, protesters in Kiev do not did not seek a sharp break with Russia. C, protesters in Minsk seek closer ties with NATO in the West. And D, protesters in Kiev did not seek closer ties with NATO and the West. 
And for those who are interested uh, in foreign affairs, it's very worthwhile to take a look at the U.S. Institute of Peace website and uh, see all the information that's there. And you can visit that at usip.org. So, Pat? All right. Well, thanks uh, for that, uh, Breck. And I would also suggest uh, taking a look at uh, what's going on in, uh, in Belarus. Uh, we, uh, we talked about that a, a couple of weeks ago when the, uh, the protests really turned ugly and there was question about Russian involvement. But the protests have continued uh, almost nonstop. And uh, it, it remains to be seen whether the Russians will become more actively involved, uh, what's going to happen there, whether uh, Lukashenko will, uh, will uh, step down or uh, somehow uh, yield to uh, the protests because there's no sign that the protests are going to continue. Uh, I'd also mention on the, the top of the show here another item that we could have done a deep dive on is the continuing uh, conflict between Armenia and Azerbaijan in Nagorno-Karabakh. Uh, we, we did talk about that two weeks ago when that started up. And again, that's another conflict that's uh, it's continuing apace. So those are, are uh, issues, uh, conflicts, protests, uh, really uh, important uh, issues in, in the day-to-day. -day. So uh, we, we hope that uh, you'll keep up with those and, and we'll uh, uh, undoubtedly talk, to, talk about those again on future Global News Review uh, programs. But for now, let's, uh, let's jump into topic number one, the World Food Program and the uh, Nobel Peace Prize. Uh, Dick or uh, Breck, I think uh, you're going to lead us on that one. I think Breck's doing it. Yeah, I'm just going to commit from time to time. Thank you very much. <laughs> well, feel free to jump in absolutely anytime. But uh, last week, the uh, uh, Nobel Peace Prize Committee awarded the Peace Prize to the United Nations World Food Program, which was in some sense a bit of an upset or at least somewhat of an unexpected outcome. Uh, because many commentators thought that the award was going to go to either the World Health Organization or to the Swedish climate activist Greta Thunberg. But it was awarded to the WFP, the United Nations uh, World Food Program, and the Nobel Committee uh, declared, said why they were giving the award to the WFP, said it was being given, quote, for its efforts to combat hunger, for its contribution to bettering conditions for peace in conflict-affected areas, and for acting as a driving force in efforts to prevent the use of hunger as a weapon of war and conflict, close quote. And the committee went on to say that uh, in particular during this COVID pandemic, uh, the WFP had uh, acted heroically and uh, they closed, the committee closed with this comment, quote, the world is in danger of experiencing a hunger crisis of inconceivable proportions if the World Food Program and other food assistant organizations do not receive the financial support uh, they have requested, close quote. And uh, Pat, I thought I'd give just very briefly a little history about the World Food Program, which is the food assistance branch of the United Nations. And it came about back in 1961 uh, uh, in a call from uh, President uh, Dwight Eisenhower just before he left office and uh, President Eisenhower said that he thought it was worth experimenting to see if the UN could develop a food di uh, distribution program to deal with world hunger. And here we are 60 years later and the, WF the WFP is the largest humanitarian organization focused on hunger and food security. It's headquartered in Rome. It has offices in 80 countries. It has a staff of more than 17,000. It has a litany of equipment, including 5,600 trucks, 30 ships, and almost 100 airplanes. 
that are on the move every day delivering food to people that uh, are hungry and don't have access to the amount of food that they need. In 2019, the WFP served, gave food to over 100 million people in what they say were as many as 15 billion aggregate meals or rations as they call it. And two thirds of that activity was in uh, combat zones. So the WFP is doing uh, uh, tremendous and uh, tremendous work under very difficult uh, conditions. Uh, it is consistently thought to be one of the most well-respected UN agencies in terms of getting the job done, as I said, in very difficult environments and at reasonable cost. And uh, the one other thing I'd add just for uh, interest sake is if you're wondering how big a problem world hunger is, well, the WFP estimates that perhaps as much as 10% of the world's population faces some serious degree of food insecurity. That's 800 million people who uh, at one point or another during the year are going hungry. And uh, every year these, depend these people are dependent on good weather, decent economies, uh, peace in their area if, they're ha if they are to have food on their table. And when those conditions don't prevail, the WFP gets involved uh, in a massive uh, way. And of course, COVID, the COVID pandemic has ramped up those numbers uh, considerably because of not only the deep worldwide recession, that's been uh, caused, but as well, the disruption uh, to supply chains. So Dick, let me stop for a minute, see if you have anything you wanna add at this point. I'll just throw in that the, they, they've got a hard charging executive director. I guess there's, there's a 36 member state board that controls the activities and actions of uh, the food program. And, and all of their money comes from contributions and mostly from nation states that are members of the UN and try to support this activity. But their uh, executive director, David Beasley, is uh, in the middle of a five-year term. So he's somewhat responsible for the activities of the, the, the organization winning the Peace Prize. And he's a former governor of South Carolina. So uh, he's an interesting guy. And while he was in South Carolina, he got the John F. Kennedy Medal for Courage by stepping out and saying the Confederate battle flag should no longer fly over the capital of South Carolina. And Dick, let me add to that, because that's really interesting. Uh, as you said, all contributions going to the WFP are voluntary. And in 2019 and 2020, these funds are down a little bit because of the pandemic. But in 2019, the World Food uh, Program raised about $8 billion. Uh, yeah. And roughly 3.4 billion of that came from uh, the US. And the rest comes from other governments, from corporations and private individuals. And just for interest sake, the top six givers in the US is far and away more than three times as much as anybody else. But the top six givers to the uh, WFP are the USA, Germany, U the United Kingdom, uh, uh, the European Union, and then Saudi Arabia and United Arab Emirates are number five and number six. And just for interest sake, uh, toward the bottom of uh, national givers to the WFP, France comes in at $70,000. Now that's versus 3.4 billion from the US. And uh, the, uh, the Principality of Monaco comes in at $11,000. So there's a wide uh, spread. But one of the things about David Beasley, who you mentioned, who's the executive director and former Republican governor of South Carolina, yeah. he became the executive director in 2017, significantly supported by two South Carolinians that have come to play prominent roles in the Trump administration, Nikki Haley, former uh, US ambassador to the UN, 
and Senator Lindsey Graham, who sits on a subcommittee, an appropriations subcommittee, that's responsible for how much the U.S. funds the U.N. And mm -hmm. as everybody's read about, Trump has gone about, uh, President Trump has gone about uh, throughout his administration, cutting back funding of U.N. agencies. And of course, this summer announced withdrawal with the U.S. withdrawal from the uh, World Health Organization. But the one agency, uh, thanks to David Beasley, that uh, the Trump administration has funded significantly more is the World Food Program. When uh, uh, former Governor Beasley came into office, the U.S. contribution at that point was $2.5 billion. And as I said, it's gone up to uh, $3.4 billion. And uh, so politics plays a significant role in these, uh, as you'd expect, in, uh, in, in, the, uh, in the fortunes of these international aid agencies. So I just pass that along. I think it's a, that's a great point, Breck, because, you know, in international diplomacy, international relationships, relationships are critical. And the fact that you've got Lindsey Graham and, and Nikki Haley supporting this organization goes a long way in helping to prime the pump to get the dollars flowing into it. So good for them. Hey, and I have a question for you, Dick, uh, after, after just a very brief introduction. Uh, the Nobel Peace Prize was set up by Alfred Nobel, who was a Swedish <laughs> entrepreneur, scientist, chemical engineer, and whose most famous invention was dynamite. And he set up when he accumulated a huge fortune. And when he died in 1896, he set up five different Nobel prizes of which the Peace Prize is probably the most uh, prominent and funded those prizes. So they have a monetary award uh, every year. And he designated in his will that there would be a Norwegian committee that would decide the uh, recipients of these prizes uh, 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 over time. Now there are, here's my question. There are 21 Americans that have received the Nobel Peace Prize, and that includes people like Woodrow Wilson and Theodore Roosevelt, and most, most recently Barack Obama. But there are two Tennesseans that have received the Nobel Peace Prize. And uh, would you happen to know who those are? I, I looked it up, so. I, I think I can get one, Cordell Hall. Cordell Hall is one, that's exactly right. Former Secretary of State in the Roosevelt. And, 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 the, and the second one, I'm not sure. Well, the and second I, one invented the internet. Oh, David knows. Al Gore. Al Gore. Al Gore. Oh, that's good. Yeah, I should know that. <laughs> there you go. Good. So, and the one other thing I'd mention just for interest sake is most people would say the most notable omission for never having, uh, for somebody that deserved but never did receive the Nobel Peace Prize, Mahatma Gandhi never received it. Hmm. Interesting. Well, that tells you something about politics and racism back in the day, huh? It does. Yeah, I think politics, it probably politics, does. politics plays a part. We're, we're going to uh, cut this segment short, but I'll just mention that um, the uh, World Food Program uh, is, is receiving money from nation states, but they also get contributions from individuals. And if you go to yeah. Facebook, you can find the World Food Program uh, page there. If you like it, you'll get uh, some of their announcements and uh, have a, a place to donate to the WFP, which uh, obviously is an extremely worthwhile program. There's, there's no more satisfying uh, feeling than feeding a, a hungry person. And, and we do have uh, famine and starvation across uh, large swaths of the, the world. And COVID-19 has not made that situation any better. All right, uh, we're, we're gonna move on. We're going to uh, put David in the, the hot seat here. And again, David is, uh, comes to us from the Tennessean and the USA Today Network. And I'll mention that uh, David is also uh, playing a part in our uh, debate party, uh, de debate night watch party on the 22nd of October. 
You can find that on the tnwac.org calendar. Uh, we're going to have a, a very interesting program before the debate. Uh, we will uh, have the debate in our Zoom meeting, so you can watch it there, and we'll continue to chat during the debate, and then we're going to have a nice conversation about what we saw um, during the debate uh, following. And uh, David is uh, doing that in his role as uh, a guru of civility, Tennessee. And, and David, before you start about uh, journalists around the world, uh, feel free to make a mention of civility, Tennessee, and what that's about and where people can find it. I'll turn it over to you. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Pat. And uh, Civility Tennessee is a campaign to promote, model, and encourage uh, civil discourse. Uh, and looking at the roots of, of citizens from the Latin roots, kiwitas, which is about the role of the citizen to be responsible, to challenge society, but also to uphold society. Uh, polarization, which is not just an American uh, crisis, is a worldwide crisis right now that we're seeing that uh, has caused all sorts of strife, be it on the issues such as climate change, trade policy, and right now, as we mentioned in the earlier segment, hunger. Uh, we're certainly seeing people, as we, as we look at uh, an issue like uh, coronavirus, for example, where we're having these discussions about who should get a vaccine. You know, is it just the richest countries or does every country get access to it? Uh, and in terms of my international credentials, um, I worked, I interned in uh, Mexico City as a production assistant for ForeignTV.com. It was a long ago um, defunct now uh, uh, .com in the, in the late 90s that was headed by Peter Arnett, formerly of CNN, where we had a chance to talk about social and cultural news in Mexico. And I've always been interested in international affairs and I'm thankful to, to Tennessee World Affairs Council for including me in programs. Uh, but this issue of um, journalism and journalists around the world with growing uh, autocracy, with growing authoritarianism and popul uh, populism, we're seeing tremendous threats to freedoms and not least of which is freedom of the press. Uh, Pat, you had mentioned Belarus and according to uh, the Committee to Protect Journalists, there have been 49 journalists who were detained in Belarus covering recent protests and eight are still being held. Uh, so uh, it's, it's perilous, whether you're in a place like Minnesota or you're in Belarus, you are at tremendous risk just trying to do your job to cover these particular protests and events of the day. And it's, it's particularly uh, distressing when you have uh, situations that uh, uh, of, of civil war or conflict, um, and, and this goes back to that whole conversation of how can we democratically, can we sit at the table and resolve our differences? In some cases, authoritarian powers simply do not want to do that. Uh, and journalists often are, are caught in the crosshairs of that. Uh, the Committee to Protect Journalists, um, according to their most recent data, there have been 19 journalists killed in 2020, uh, 248 in prison in 2019, and 64 missing globally. Uh, a very prominent um, a journalist, James Foley, who went to my alma mater, Northwestern, was uh, beheaded by ISIS a few years ago. And there's a major award named after him uh, by the Online News Association, which become one of the most prominent global journalism organizations in the world, uh, focusing on digital journalism. Because uh, that's a big part of the way that we cover. It's not just the traditional print and television. Now we're, we're doing journalism via WhatsApp and via social media sites. Uh, and those are uh, getting censorship. You know, we, we, uh, there's, um, especially in these conversations about cryptocurrency, you know, what kind of information and data security issues what can we report? What is being silenced? And, and this is really important to us. A part of the slides that you had um, uh, shown was Maria Ressa. And this is one thing I want to talk about just for a little bit, which is Maria Ressa is a Filipina uh, journalist who founded Rappler, uh, which was an investigative journalist, uh, journalism site online. Uh, and it has been very critical of President Rodrigo Duterte of the Philippines for his um, 
uh, extrajudicial killings of, of, of people during the drug war that the Philippines is having. Uh, and uh, she's been reporting on it and has been a target of uh, Duterte. Uh, and she actually was convicted of uh, crimes against the government and is fighting it. She's appealing those, those crimes, but she's been arrested numerous times. And I had the, um, the privilege of, of watching her speak last year at the New Leader News Leaders Association in New Orleans, and also had a chance to meet her briefly to talk about these issues of press freedom. And she's diminutive in size, but so strong in heart and courage. And one thing that she told us was, the Philippines is the canary in the coal mine for the United States. Where freedom of the press goes there, we are sure to see a threat here in the United States. Uh, we obviously have a long history uh, from the Spanish-American War, or as when I studied abroad in Spain, they like to call the uh, uh, War of 1898 uh, and other names. Uh, uh, as a funny aside, I was asked by a Spanish student why the United States decided to be aggressive towards Spain. I said, I can't, I wasn't there at the time, but uh, people have long memories about global issues. And when it comes to the Philippines and its role, it, it's been a longstanding democracy in, uh, in South Asia, Southeast Asia, and, and it's coming under attack. Uh, the press, the reason why it's important, not just speaking as a journalist, but as a citizen, we need to know what the government is doing. We need to know how the government is using our resources and how it's treating its citizens. And as we're seeing in the case of Belarus and other countries, uh, they're being treated very badly. You know, we're not seeing elections that are being conducted fairly. And sadly, I, I wish I would not have to say that we're now, you know, starting to look at, we don't know what kind of transition we're going to have here in the United States. Uh, there was even a um, op-ed in the New York Times recently that called for speaking to the international community if this election is not resolved in a peaceful manner. Uh, the United States has long uh, uh, prided itself on being a beacon for the world, and we're right now in very perilous times. And for journalists, that makes her job even tougher and more dangerous. Well, David, uh, uh, I, I really appreciate you telling us what's going on in the world of journalism and, and what the challenges are around the world. It's, uh, as, as we discussed uh, previously, it's really an underreported uh, issue, and uh, you know, there's, there's, uh, as as you've kind of alluded to, there's U.S. roots to some of the problems. Um, I think it was last year, uh, A.G. Sulzberger, the publisher of the New York Times, wrote an extensive opinion piece talking about some of these problems around the world and uh, tracing back uh, the use of the word fake news and mm -hmm. enemies of the people. Uh, kind of a despicable uh, description of the press taking historical uh, words to to apply in in the in that manner, and those have uh, a genesis uh, in Washington D.C. Um, you know, we're we're not a, a political broadcast here, but we have to uh, identify the the source of some of these issues, and and clearly President Trump has uh, lionized the. Uh, uh, the press here in the United States, and that has given comfort to um, autocrats around the world, er Erdogan uh, in Turkey, uh, Orban in Hungary, and and others to use that uh, for that phrase, fake news to call out journalists and enemies of the people. And uh, Sulzberger in, in his op-ed, uh, and I, I would encourage people to take a look at that, it was from September of last year, I believe, um, really laid out the case for uh, people getting more concerned about the abuse rhetorically and physically around the world of uh, journalists and underscoring the important role they play in uh, preserving and protecting our democracy and shining a light on, uh, on corruption and, and malfeasance in government and elsewhere. David, you mentioned Maria Ressa, right, in the Philippines. Um, 
I one of my favorite programs, and I, I recommend it for anybody who's interested in international relations because it tends to have an international bent. But it's Christiane Amanpour. And she basically has taken over the slot that a guy named Charlie Rose used to have. And she will inter interview two or three or maybe four sometimes people. Most of the topics are international, but many of them are, are domestic. And one of the really wonderful interviews she had was, was with Maria Ressa, who's just an ebullient, nice person. And you could see what's going on in the Philippines and how do Duterte has uh, manipulated the law to try to shut down freedom of the press. So I recommend that program to you. And I know if you go and, and uh, Google Christiane Amanpour, she has archived those old conversations. So you can go and watch those things on your own leisure. Yeah, no, she's an excellent journalist. Uh, another closer to home, one of the things that uh, I heard um, Jorge Ramos of Univision speak recently at the Society of Professional Journalists Conference. This was in early September of this year, where he talked about an interview with, um, uh, with the president of, uh, of Venezuela uh, mm -hmm. and how he had accused him of uh, Maduro, uh, Nicolas Maduro had accused him of uh, being a dictator and immediately uh, Ramos and his crew were detained for several hours. Uh, and he's asked some uh, political leaders some tough questions over the years, but even, even Fidel Castro when, uh, <clears throat> many, many years ago, uh, but uh, that kind of treatment was unusual to say, because you asked a question I didn't like, I'm going to throw you potentially in jail. Uh, and this is a real threat. Uh, and it took international pressure, company pressure to say you, you, you shouldn't be doing that. Uh, to Pat's point about fake news, uh, that's extremely damaging. And part of the, 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 the I guess one of the, the, the reasons we did Civility Tennessee, aside from civil discourse, is really to let people get to know journalists and our journalism. Uh, we see research from the Pew Center and also the American Press Society, American Press Institute, pardon me, that says that only about 20% of Americans have ever met a journalist. And I don't know what the figures are globally, but it shows that people get their impression of journalists based on what politicians and what the media they consume say. And oftentimes it's not accurate. In most cases, like myself, we live in neighborhoods, we shop at the same places our, our readers and consumers do. Uh, and we cer certainly want to see our, our community succeed and, and thrive, uh, but that's certainly not the impression that many people have because of those those stereotypes and those those mm -hmm. images. Uh, one of the things to note, uh, Pat, you had mentioned President Trump. He has used that that caustic rhetoric, and if you look at the Republican National Convention, their their uh, platform, it basically recycles the 2016 platform and adds a page that is very critical to members of the press. I often prefer to use the word press over media because it, it speaks to what our freedom is. The, of the five freedoms we have in the First Amendment, freedom of the press is one fundamental one. Mm -hmm. uh, an interesting point here is that unlike other countries, when I, when I worked in Mexico, or interned there, we had to register with the state and there was an Article 33 of the Constitution that could be used as an excuse to kick out foreigners if we were causing too much trouble. Here in the United States, there's so much freedom. I don't need a license to be a journalist. I, uh, you know, and, and that means that we have to police ourselves, regulate ourselves to gain trust. But that means it's, it's, very, much, it's very difficult because we don't have a council of people saying, if you screwed up, we're just gonna, you know, we're, we're gonna kick you out of the profession. Mm. Well, you know, there was the, uh, the case this year after COVID uh, of New York Times, Wall Street Journal and, and other journalists in Beijing uh, being shown the door, the door because they were reporting about what you know what journalists report about in uh, in a country like China during an episode like the pandemic, mm -hmm. and the Trump administration retaliated by 
Uh, I think they classified uh, certain organs uh, of reporters who were in the states as uh, agents of a foreign government. So, um, you know, there, there's reciprocity that, that we need to be careful about when dealing with journalists because uh, whatever we do in the United States, uh, this or that autocrat around the world can use that as the uh, example of, of how to treat journalists. Yes, exactly. Hey, David, I had a question, if you don't, if you don't mind, and, and, and please correct what I'm getting ready to say if, if, if you have different information on it. But the polls, the surveys I've seen, you know, in recent times suggest that in the United States, at least, that public trust of the press is a little bit in decline. Now, it hasn't sunk to the level of Congress or President Trump or anything like that, but that it's that it's that it has been in decline. And if you think that's accurate, because maybe there's some other polls that say something different. And certainly some of that is because of the horrific attacks that the Trump administration has been making on the press. But are there other reasons behind that? Why, if that's true, why is, because that, you know, freedom of the press, I couldn't agree more, is really important, but it's also important that the public trusts the press uh, to present uh, 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 information that helps us make decisions and know what's going on and so forth and so on. So if you could comment on that, I'd be interested. Rick, you're absolutely correct. Since the 1960s, the, there's been a decline in trust of institutions across America, including the press. Uh, which I think that one of the last surveys I saw was in the in the 20 percentile, whereas Congress has generally been between nine and 18 <laughs> percent. And a lot of it is, is anti-institutional bias. You know, back in the 1970s with the Watergate uh, crisis, the scandal, the, the press, a lot of people went into journalism. You know, the press had a great reputation because they were going against the government. But you've seen a lot of efforts to um, to uh, delegitimize the press. And this is one of the things that's really hard. I think in this era, what I'm most concerned about these days is misinformation and disinformation campaigns, whether it's from Russia inserting itself in the US election through bots and fake Twitter accounts uh, and Facebook posts or uh, other bad actors uh, trying to confuse people. This is one of the, the biggest challenges right now I have is even convincing many of our own residents in Tennessee that COVID-19 is serious. That it is that it is infectious, that it is deadly. Uh, you know, people. It's it's easy when people are um, are hurting, especially economically, to start to believe anyone who will tell them that they have the relief, that they have the the panacea for them. When in fact, we know what the data show us. And and this is one of the things that concerns me. It's not just attacks against the press. It's attacks against academics, against diplomats, attacks against librarians. Even you know, people who are supposed to be our front line of sending our message of freedom, sending our message of, um, of, of trust. I, I just recently gave a TED talk at uh, Belmont University and it was all about creating spaces for public disagreement in this very polarized time. And a, a question that I had up in, in the billboard and I won't belabor the story, but it just said, why should we trust you? It was a question that I was asked by someone in rural Tennessee and it was a great question because he let me answer it. And when I told him about what we were doing <laughs> to try to regain his trust, because his angst was based upon the fact that in 2016, all the messages he heard from the media sources that he consumed were that Donald Trump was going to lose the election, Hillary Clinton was going to win. So he saw the polls as being wrong. He saw the media as delegitimizing his mind. And when he met me and talked to me, suddenly there was a connection there. The problem mm -hmm. is this is hard to scale. You need a lot of people doing this work. And so many journalists are busy covering the news that it's hard to make those community connections. Um, 
And, and you know, one of the, the challenges, especially in this pandemic, is that as much as I love seeing you all in Zoom, I prefer to be in the same room as you, uh, which would make a much more um, uh, enjoyable uh, experience. But this is what we have. We have to do with, with what we can. I, I have to give a shout out to Pat. He was my first guest on my Tennessee Voices podcast. And we're about to um, air episode 100 this week. Uh, mm -hmm. So it's an opportunity to get people to, to see people in the face. You know, we, we need this contact so that we can build those relationships. Uh, one of the, um, the last things I'll do before moving on is that I, I, I see a phrase, and this is not original to me, but I've modified it. And it's that facts don't change people's minds, but relationships can. And I found through Civility Tennessee that in building that trust, you can certainly guide people to where they need to be. And I can be guided to places where I didn't think, um, where I thought I was right and, and maybe I wasn't. And so I think that part of the exchange is really important. Thanks for that. Well, thanks, well, uh, thanks, thanks, David, for that uh, conversation. And and you're 100 percent right that uh, we need we need more face-to-face -face contact and uh, Zoom. But we also need, I think, Pat, to educate, especially our young people, on how to discern what's fake and what's real. The, how to the whole how to idea that there are no such things as facts anymore is absurd. I mean, the sun will come up in the east tomorrow morning. You can bet on it. It's a fact. It's not going to change. And yet there are people out there that are yelling and screaming and are getting attention. And that gets into the social media aspect of anybody being able to throw stuff out there and, and you know, things go viral that are totally made up and totally not true. The, the blurring between reporting and editorializing has totally been destroyed in my lifetime. I mean, I remember, I'm old enough to remember when the editorial page was one thing and the news page was something else. And now it's just all in one big blur. So well, that's, and, my, and that's my when, rant when you for add, the day. When you add in the uh, problem of foreign interference and deliberate yeah. uh, disinformation, uh, it's difficult to sort all that out. But uh, we're going to move on here. I'll just add the comment that uh, based on our last survey, uh, the, uh, the humble uh, trio here at the Global News Review has been rated 100% credible all the time, every day, every <laughs> night. So uh, <laughs> I, I won't I tell you. It's coattails then. <laughs> I, I, I won't tell you what the sample size was of, of that survey, but we're in, we're in good shape. Um, uh, moving on, we're going to talk about uh, uh, several issues kind of balled together in, uh, in one piece, uh, and that's uh, the question of uh, nuclear weapons and uh, the presidency. And, and we're going to start this off with um, a conversation about this weekend's uh, parade in um, North Korea, in Pyongyang, you, you probably have seen the pictures from that where uh, North Korea rolled out a uh, tremendous uh, ICBM on a mobile launcher. Um, and it, it really raised uh, a lot of eyebrows because this is a, a much larger uh, weapon than, uh, let's see if we can get the, uh, the picture of this thing up here because this was really uh, uh, an eye-opening, uh, come on CNN, cooperate, a an eye-opening display of uh, what the North Koreans have been up to. I think you can see that uh, now. Um, but it was uh, a missile that uh, had not been seen before in public. Uh, it, uh, it goes to the question of what North Korea has been up to in the, uh, the time that has passed since uh, President Trump met with uh, Kim, uh, Kim Jong-un, the leader of uh, North Korea. And, you know, uh, 
just as a military analyst, I'll, I'll uh, caveat uh, the, the watching of this parade uh, with the notion that um, uh, societies like these have been known in the past to parade mock-ups of things that were not actual uh, military hardware. So keep that in mind. I don't know if it's paper mache or uh, duct tape and, uh, and uh, chicken bailing wire or whatever, but uh, it, was, uh, it certainly uh, brought some attention to the question of what's going on in North Korea. So we have uh, in the background uh, an increasingly dangerous international landscape in terms of nuclear weapons. We've uh, seen the, uh, the joint uh, comprehensive plan of action with, uh, with Iran and the, uh, the P5 plus one powers, the so-called Iran nuclear deal uh, be set aside by the Trump administration. Uh, we've also eliminated the uh, INF treaty, the uh, Intermediate Nuclear Force Treaty with uh, Russia, which had been negotiated with the Soviet Union. Uh, we've uh, uh, given up on the Open Skies Agreement, which was an agreement with Russia and uh, NATO that the, each side could fly aircraft over the other to do inspection. And this is uh, basically a confidence building measure. Some people argue that satellites can do the same thing, but uh, allowing the other side to fly aircraft over one sovereign territory was uh, one measure of cooperation uh, in dealing with uh, nuclear arms on either side. Uh, so, you know, we, we're looking at um, competition between the United States and Russia. Uh, China's uh, expected to double their nuclear inventory in the next 10 years. Uh, we have um, conflicts between nuclear powers like uh, China and India over the border. And, and Brett gave a, a great laydown of, of what that was uh, all about a couple of weeks ago. Uh, India, Pakistan, both are nuclear armed. They're, they're uh, at odds over Kashmir and India uh, seizing uh, complete uh, authority in Kashmir in this past year has, has put uh, that, that issue uh, more in the forefront. So these are all things that are they're going on in the background. They don't get a lot of uh, conversation. And uh, I don't know why in the presidential debates or in the conversations about uh, choosing a president, there's not more conversation about uh, not just foreign relations, but specifically about our nuclear posture and uh, what the uh, what the issues and the dangers are, because you can you can look at any authority on uh, nuclear and national security issues, and they'll tell you that we're in a more dangerous position regarding this existential threat to nuclear weapons around the world than we've been in uh, in quite some time. The uh, Bulletin of Atomic Scientists, uh, the people who keep the uh, so-called doomsday clock, you may have heard of that. It uh, sets the clock at a uh, number of minutes before midnight uh, and uh, keeps track of existential threats like nuclear weapons, um, pandemics, climate change, and so forth. Uh, in January of 2019, they reset the clock to 90 seconds before midnight, the closest it's been to the, uh, you know, the uh, rhetorical uh, position where the world is is at great threat from from these uh, sorts of issues. And in January of this year, they uh, reaffirmed that we are in that precarious position. Uh, I would recommend that uh, our viewers take a look and in our youtube.com slash TMWAC archive for a program we did uh, a month and a half ago with Secretary William Perry and Tom Kalina from Plowshares. And Plowshares is the, uh, the number one 
institution advocating for uh, reductions and elimination of uh, nuclear weapons. Uh, Secretary Perry and Tom Kalina wrote a book called The Button. And in it, they talked about uh, the proliferation of nuclear weapons and uh, removing uh, the number of weapons in, in arsenals. Uh, one of the issues that they talked about was the New START Treaty. And we've, uh, we've discussed that here before, but basically the United States and Russia in 2010 signed an agreement called New START and that limited, uh, put a ceiling on the number of uh, uh, weapons, nuclear weapons, strategic weapons that each side could possess. So it, it set a cap on launchers, actual warheads and so forth. Uh, that uh, agreement, <clears throat> excuse me, that agreement expires. And if we don't act before February, it will go away and it will remove the constraints on uh, nuclear weapons and launch systems uh, and so forth between the two countries. Uh, by mere agreement between the presidents and President Putin has indicated that he's willing to uh, uh, re, uh, renew uh, the new start. Uh, if the United States side agrees, a, uh, a five-year continuation uh, will happen without any additional uh, treaty obligations. And it is a treaty, so it has to be ratified by the Senate, but if both sides agree, it just uh, goes on uh, as before. So uh, those who are concerned about uh, nuclear weapons, the proliferation and the size of arsenals between Russia and uh, the United States uh, are uh, pushing for that to, uh, to be approved. In the meantime, the Trump administration is uh, trying to uh, uh, open the can on New START and renegotiate. They wanna bring China into the conversation uh, the Chinese are not interested in getting involved in arms control because their inventory is much less than Russia and the United States, uh, but the United States wants to bring them in the umbrella of uh, New START. So that's, that's complicating the issue. Also complicating the issue is the development on both sides of new types of weapons. And these are things like uh, ground-based uh, boost-launched uh, nuclear-armed missiles that can go 6,000 kilometers uh, the U.S. has experimented with the hypersonic technology. Uh, the Russians have had some demonstrations uh, that they've got uh, uh, these, these weapon systems ready to go. Uh, there was a nuclear-powered cruise missile that they've developed. Uh, they had an accident about six months ago in uh, the north of Russia, and you may have heard about an explosion in a city in the north, uh, unexplained, and the Russians haven't really discussed that, but uh, it was traced to this development of a nuclear powered nuclear armed cruise missile. Uh, Russia also has a uh, multi-megaton, uh, they call it a torpedo, but it's really an autonomous uh, submersible launched from a submarine that uh, could attack uh, uh, cities along a, a coastline. Uh, so these are, these are strategic weapons that need to be brought under the umbrella of a strategic arrangement with uh, the United States and Russia. So, um, Again, I'm mystified why these conversations are not part of our presidential vetting uh, the positions of uh, this side or the other side as to what their intentions are in the strategic nuclear weapons realm. Uh, these, are, these are important issues. Everybody thinks, well, we've never had a, a nuclear exchange between Russia and the United States, so why should we worry about it now? Well, we, we never had a pandemic that shut down the world for uh, nine months and uh, uh, killed uh, a million people around the world, uh, quite like uh, we're experiencing now. So these are, these are uh, black swans, things that uh, 
you don't expect to happen, low probability, high impact events. Um, and if we can build confidence between Russia and the United States over these nuclear weapons and limit uh, the numbers that there are less chance of an accident and uh, less chance that uh, they'll, they'll get out of control. Uh, meanwhile, we need to be mindful of nuclear proliferation in, uh, in the non-great power states around the world because those post uh, equal risks as well. Uh, one of the, uh, the uh, things that Secretary Perry and Tom Kalina talked about in their conversation uh, that I had with them here uh, was uh, the issue of sole, uh, sole nuclear release authority. And since uh, Harry Truman, uh, after the bombings of Japan with nuclear weapons, the authority to release uh, nuclear weapons has rested with the commander in chief, the president. And that's uh, one man control of the entire nuclear arsenal. And that person uh, with, without regard to this president or any other president, uh, this party or any other party, whoever is, uh, is in the White House can at any time call upon uh, the launch of a nuclear weapon or uh, massive numbers of nuclear weapons with no constraint on the authority to do so. Um, I can speak from experience having served in the military in uh, probably a half a dozen assignments in which I was involved in either the, uh, the security of uh, nuclear weapons or the command and control of launch of nuclear weapons in submarines, aircraft carriers, and cruisers that were nuclear armed. Um, I understand completely the, the, how the system works below the uh, presidential level in that there are multiple levels of authority required, uh, two-man control in the missile launch sites, multiple uh, levels of control in submarines, and similarly in bombers before a nuclear weapon can be released. So the idea that any one person in the White House can uh, exercise uh, that, uh, that authority is worrisome, uh, if not frightening, to, to many people. Uh, the, the title of this segment was uh, dexamethasone. Uh, I was wondering when you were going to get to pronounce that word. <laughs> that uh, Ambassador Bowers uh, successfully uh, navigated. Did, did, you, uh, did you open that in your Google uh, uh, pronunciation guide? Yeah, you know, this, this topic that, you, that you've got, I mean, I, it, to me, there's, there's three or four different subtopics here. One is arms control, nuclear pro proliferation. The other is that single launch authority that we grant to the president of the United States that basically that says that, you know, on his or her order, launch, you know, and, and, a, th and a third is um, the 25th Amendment. At what point does the president become incapacitated to a sufficient degree that he should no longer have that launch authority and people should right. take it away from him? So, um, your, well, your, your... you know, I'll, I'll mention that uh, Secretary Perry made a couple of valid points. Uh, yes, a couple, but he talked about some of the experiences, uh, for example, uh, Richard Nixon, when he was in the last days in the White House, he was drinking heavily. Secretary of Defense uh, Schlesinger, Schlesinger uh, right. gave instructions that uh, if, if uh, to the military aid right, in the White House. Yeah, uh, to the military aid in the White House that if the president uh, started talking about the opening the, uh, the football, the briefcase with the nuclear codes that he was to be called immediately. And um, you know, there's, there's some historical question about how he uh, worded the order, but basically uh, stepped in and uh, put himself between the commander in chief and the nuclear launch authority, which 
technically is uh, against the rules, probably a, a violation of law, um, but uh, he did it for the, the sake of the country. So as, as you mentioned, um, you know, in, in the reference to uh, dexamethasone, uh, and, and you can you can Google side effects. Well, basically, it impairs the individual's capacity to think rationally, right? And so, yeah. you, you know, you, you don't know. Here's a guy that has the capability of destroying the world, and he's on stuff. <laughs> I don't know that yeah, that's this, a good thing. And just the, the, the context of this, this is a reference to the president being treated for his uh, COVID infection while right. he was at uh, Walter Reed. One of the uh, concoctions they gave him was uh, dexamethasone, a, a steroid, and uh, you know there's been talk in the, the press about what it does. But uh, the Mayo Clinic uh, says side effects: common side effects, aggression, agitation, anxiety, irritability, mental depression, mood changes, and nervousness. Now, if you were if you were a launch control officer in a uh, Minuteman silo in uh, the, the upper Midwest, and you were taking dexamethasone you would be relieved of your duties until you were deemed to be medically fit. Uh, right. However, our, our constitution doesn't provide for uh, that sort of uh, accountability. And in the military, it's called the Personnel Reliability Program where you're screened for suitability for nuclear weapons duties, but it doesn't apply to the commander in chief. But what does apply is the 25th amendment and a number of presidents, uh, I think most recently uh, George Bush exercised the 25th amendment where uh, he signed over uh, powers uh, and duties of the office to the vice president while he was undergoing surgery. So he, he knew that he would not be able to discharge his duties uh, properly uh, during surgery. Let me, can I jump in on this, Pat, and sort sure. of dig in a little bit? Because the, yeah. the 25th Amendment basically came about in 1965 and it was ratified in 67. So it was on a fast track to become a constitutional amendment. And, and there was a reason for that because the, the succession powers were really not around. Like, what do you do if the president dies? It's one thing, the vice president takes over. But there are other conceivable operations. And this 25th Amendment has four different sections. And the first one says, if the president is gone, the vice president takes over. Right. The second one says, if the vice president is gone, the Senate appoint uh, the Congress, pardon me, the president appoints a new vice president and the House and the Senate then confirm that person. The third, it says if the president can't serve, he can or she could write a letter to the Congress and say, I'm going to be out of out of operation here. So in, in the in the case of the United States, section one has been used once. That's when Nixon resigned the, the office. Right. And said, I'm out of here. The vice president took over. Section two, uh, Agnew resigned in 73 and, and Ford was appointed the vice president. And then when Ford took over from Nixon, he appointed Rockefeller as vice president. Section three has really only been used by George Bush um, when he notified the Congress that he was going to have a colonoscopy and Mr. Cheney took over. Reagan also talked about using this section three, but basically just said, well, I'm, I'm gonna be out for a while, but you know, I'll be back. So he never really truly invoked it according to how you have to do that. So there's a, there's a whole bunch of stuff out there that we need to kind of look at and people are looking at it now. And I think the Congress and the Democrats in the house have begun to sort of 
dig in a little bit. At what point is the president incapacitated and who says and how does this all work? So back right. to you. Well, that's uh, that's where we are. We, we wanted to give a, just a quick uh, cluge of, uh, of current events. North Korea rolling out a monster ICBM, the conversation about the new start. Um, and I'll uh, commend to your reading a report at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Uh, it's called Restart for U.S.-Russian Nuclear Arms Control, Enhancing Security Through Cooperation. And it's by James Acton, A-C-T-O-N, and Pranay Vadi. Uh, they did a webinar this morning that I got to see uh, most of, and they had an excellent conversation with a member of a Russian think tank, and uh, Rose Gottmuller, who was the Deputy Assistant Secretary of State uh, negotiating the START agreement. She's uh, an arms control specialist. So if you can uh, catch that Carnegie, I'm sure they'll have it on their website, the video, uh, but also the report by Acton and Vadi on uh, the restart. Uh, that'll give you a, a great insight into what's going on with. Uh, can I, can I return the flavor or favor to uh, Dr. Walker there and ask him a question? <laughs> sure. Let me let me just uh, add that uh, I noticed that in our chat box we've had a very lively conversation uh, between uh, David, uh, some of our audience members, and I think all the questions have been answered there. So I won't uh, recapitulate those. But if anybody has more questions, throw them in the chat box in the next uh, 30 seconds, and we're trying to get to them. And, and now I pass the floor to uh, Breck Walker. So question one is, you know, how many nuclear powers uh, are there capable of or having nuclear weapons? And, and of those that have them, which of them have sole launch authority vested in one individual? Well, uh, the first one I could guess at, I'd probably have to sit there and think about it. And the second one, I flat don't know. I don't know the answer to this, but my impression is that, that the others have some kind of a redundant system that it takes more than one person to, to launch a weapon. That's a really good question. I'm going to look into that and I'll have an answer by uh, next week. <laughs> Thank you. Well, the, the nuclear powers, uh, the five uh, permanent members of the United Nations, right. the United States, Russia, China, France and, and uh, the United Kingdom. And then you've got uh, the, the additional ones that uh, came on. India in the 60s exploded a weapon, Pakistan in the 90s. Uh, Israel has what they call ambiguous uh, commentary. They, they, they won't say yes, they won't say no. Uh, Israel's on there. So the answer is uh, yes. Yes. And China. Uh, um, and uh, North Korea. Yeah. Um, South Africa had a, a, a program, they, they gave it up. Uh, Libya had a program, they gave it up. Uh, Iraq had a program, they gave it up, I Iran. So there are uh, probably eight or nine uh, acknowledged nuclear states, and then there are those that are in, in an ambiguous uh, status, uh, either working mm -hmm. towards or having the capability. You know, people talk about Japan having the capability to develop a weapon quickly if they wanted to, the technology and the ability to produce yeah. uh, fissile material. They, uh, uh, at this point, don't want to. But uh, four years ago in the campaign, the president said there'd be nothing wrong with Japan and South Korea getting nuclear weapons. And then the United States would uh, not be bothered with what's going on in the Korean Peninsula. That, that policy has seemed to have uh, shifted a little bit uh, when he came out with the fire and fury speech. Uh, but we... Uh, 
you know, you, you can't discount as America returns to America first and, uh, and our influence and presence in a lot of places in the realm of national security continues in the way that it has. A lot of these states are considering nuclear weapons as the answer to their security problems. Ambassador, anything more? I think we're- I think, uh, I think that kind of wraps it up. I, I'm really glad that David was here. Uh, you come back. Thank you so much for the opportunity. David, thanks again. We'll see you on the debate night, the debate watch party on October 22nd. Uh, we have you uh, moderating with a, a great group of, uh, I won't call them speakers, but panelists, people who are gonna talk about the mechanics of uh, elections and polling. And uh, we're gonna do a little debate bingo. Um, mm -hmm. So if you have bi Bigly on your, uh, on your bingo <laughs> card, you might be uh, in good shape. Um, so we're, we're looking forward to that. And, and thanks for all your work on Civility Tennessee and, uh, and what you do to keep the, uh, the people of, of Nashville and the, the wider regions of Tennessee uh, informed, you and your colleagues here in Nashville and uh, your colleagues around the world who some of them are uh, battling uh, troubles they, they don't need to be uh, dealing with. So we're, we're glad we got to talk about that a little bit. Thank you. Uh, gentlemen, uh, thanks so much for being here. Uh, Ambassador Byers, Dr. Walker, we'll see you. Amanda Ryan. Good to see you guys. Enjoy it. Take care. Fair winds.